welcome to Out from the Cube. We are fortunate today that uh, for our Friday guests that we have a CEO and founder of a company uh, that I guess is founded up in uh, the Chicago area, and it's uh, Corey Warfield, who's, uh, as we kind of talked offline, is not just the CEO and founder of one company. It sounds like you have a lot of different things going on, but it is uh, late January, and uh, before we kind of get going with our conversation, um, I'm getting crushed with cold. And it sounds like you're, you're, you're getting crushed with cold and snow. And you set offline five feet of snow. Now, um, I'm not the great math, mathematician. Maybe you are. But I don't know how many inches that is. But five feet of snow. It's about 70 uh, inches. 70 inches of snow. Over, how, over what period of time did, did it's, all it's that fall? About a week now. It's been coming down on and off. And, um, you know, I think when you go to the park, it's probably more like three feet, just solid snow on the ground. And then. Uh, you know, there are different parts with the snow banks and stuff. Uh, just a few years ago, uh, here at the same house that I have, uh, it snowed so much that it covered all the cars. So you, you literally had to dig your car out of the snow just to even see the roof of it. It's fantastic. Now, now does, does that city shut down? Like, are you just, is, are people still expected to kind of dig their cars out, get on the roads, get to work and do what, I mean, that's a lot of snow. That's a lot of plowing. It's a lot of salt that, you know, we, we work, or at least I work kind of in the IT world, that if that were to happen, I can just say, well, I'm working remote today. But does the city shut down when, that, when you get that much snow? It doesn't, but I'll tell you, my, my offices for Shedwell is at the WeWork, and I love WeWork. But on these snowy days, you go, and it's about half occupied. And as you can see from my, from my luscious backdrop, today was a day where I decided I'm not going downtown. There's, there was no need for it. And uh, my wife's out of, out of the country with the car, so it would have been a bit of a commute. And I just... Uh, Right. You know, for, for whatever reason, I, I'm, I'm, great, I'm, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to kind of choose to work from home. So uh, I get to shut down when it snows like this. But no, the city is still pretty much go, go, go. Wow. Wow. So um, yeah, did you grow up in Chicago? Uh, we didn't talk about that offline. Is that your, that's your home state, home city, and that's where you're from? Yeah. So, I, so I, was, uh, I was born on the West Coast, but I moved here when I was two. And I was here until, uh, until I went through college and dropped out. And then I spent a number of years kind of living around the country. I'm in a number of capacities. So I've lived in, I think, 12 or more states in my life. But I came back to Chicago about 14 years ago. And uh, I've been here in my house now for almost 10. So yeah, definitely have the, uh, the foundation and the roots here. Now, where did you go to? Co did you go to college in the Chicago area? No, so I went to a small liberal arts college in Indiana called Earlham. And uh, after one quick year, it, it became pretty obvious to me that uh, the college wasn't for me. I, I took a summer job uh, as a as a computer software tester for Rand McNally, and you know this is in the mid '90s, and it, they were working on an encyclopedia and a, kind of a an early GPS mapping system. And, and I was a software tester for him, making I think $18 an hour at the time, which in 1997 was a lot of money, and it was kind of everything I'd ever hoped to make if I graduated from college. And although I was on a scholarship, it just it, 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 I had had a bad experience in college, really. I just didn't enjoy it. I, I, I loved, you know, I was very popular with the ladies and with the liquor store, but, uh, yeah, I didn't feel like I was learning much. And I felt like I learned more in that summer job just doing computer software testing. And so um, I, I continued to get better jobs. And I decided, you know, initially I just deferred college for a year. I told them I'll see, see you next year. Uh, and then it was such a good year that I decided it wasn't for me. And now, it's kind of funny now, now that my companies are doing pretty well and, you know, we're scaling and hiring and getting some PR, uh, people are starting to put me on, on lists that I, I don't deserve to be on yet, but basically going, well, Corey, look, you and 
Bill Gates and Steve, you know, all these people like none of you finished college. And it's like, right. well, <laughs> you know, it's kind of affirming. Right. Yeah. Well, before we get into kind of where you're at, what you're doing and, and the businesses you've spun up and how you've spun them up, you know, I, I, I recorded an episode last week with a gentleman in Southern Illinois or Southern Missouri, Cape Girardeau area. Um, and he worked for the Red Cross. His name was Julian Watkins, had a great really enjoyed this conversation with him, had a great conversation. But at the end of the conversation, he kind of randomly put in that he was also really into rap battles and would travel I saw that. and do rap battles and was on MTV doing these rap battles. And I found that interesting because I'm always, I'm always drawn to people's passions and how the time they put into it and the training and the knowledge and the research they do and all this sort of stuff. So I'm really into that. George, then, I, I, I have to interrupt you for a moment yeah, because yeah. Uh, I'm going to start with the non-exciting part. My, my baby sister was living in Cape Girardeau for some time recently, but one thing you might not know, and, and, and we sometimes talk a little bit about this on other podcasts I'm on, but I haven't taken it to this uh, level. I was a battle rapper uh, for many years. And so I was featured in the Source magazine as their unsigned hype uh, in an episode back in the 90s. I, I performed uh, at a rap battle here in Chicago on the South Side at George Music Mart with Crucial Conflict and Do or Die as the judges. They were both pretty big at the time. Um, I've worked with some producers that have gone on to do some pretty big things. So I still freestyle rap. People know that on right. LinkedIn. I've done a little bit of that. But uh, as a battle rapper, I, I used to uh, you know, my, my record was pretty good. Let's just say I was, I was a little white guy that would show up and other people that were battle rappers sometimes would, uh, would not want to battle me. And, and I still, at 40 years old, I've still got it. So, right. so if, that's where I wanted to go initially. <laughs> as I did I, 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 some research on you and listened to some stuff on YouTube, on some podcasts and interviews you've done, that, that was thrown out there. And I'm like, <laughs> man, two guests in a row that are into rap and rap battles and understand, you know, how that, how that business works. But how did, at what point did you, who were your influences growing up? Who did you listen to? I'm 45. You just mentioned you're 40. So we're somewhere roughly around the same age. When you grew up, you know, who were your influences in, in that world? So I actually started freestyle rapping in like seventh grade before I even listened to any rap. And then I got Ice Cube's death certificate and NWA. And those are kind of, you know, public enemy, those were some of the earlier records that I got. And to be candid, I liked them. I'm, I still 25 years or more later can still recall most of the lyrics from most of those albums. But I honestly listened to those and I thought I could do better. Um, and, and so that's kind of how I got into battle rap. And I just start in freestyling it. I'd start to make up some verses and they were really good. And you know, then I'd start to start to show people at lunch at school and stuff. And people really took to them and people would make beats for me on the on the lunchroom table or whatever. And I just start <laughs> you know, kind of talking crap about people in the room and, and it turned into something pretty cool. But I'd say that some of my earlier, I couldn't even call them influences, but some of the artists that I loved back then and still do are Nas. I think Nas is phenomenal. Gangstar, I really loved. Some of the like uh, Big L, Helter Skelter, some of those those East Coast. And then again, the West Coast, I was listening to Hieroglyphics, uh, Souls of Mischief, uh, Del the Funky Homo Sapiens, some of those guys. And um, although intellectually, I don't have the same affinity for, for this style, um, I really ended up getting into some of the Southern hip hop. So like the Scarface and Ghetto Boys and even some of the Swisher House stuff. So I'm all over the map. My favorite style of rap is hip hop, you know, and, and so that would be like the Gangstar, Tribe Called Quest to me. Tribe mm -hmm. Called Quest came out with an album just a few years ago that is phenomenal. If anyone likes rap and hip hop and has not heard the new Tribe Called Quest, I say new, it's probably five years old, but they've got Elton John on there and just some amazing mm -hmm. 
uh, collaboration. Yeah. So if you're doing this uh, at the lunchroom table at seven, you know, in seventh grade and, you know, and you're getting this great feedback from your friends and from adults possibly about, you know, how well you're doing at that and well-versed and how come you didn't go down? Did you, did you go down that road? Did you consider going down that road? Were there, you know, was it, you know, I, you come across as somebody that doesn't think anything is too difficult. Right. Uh, and so th even though that is probably difficult road to go down, um, I don't think that you would, you know, shy away from that. I didn't at all. And I was also, I love punk rock and I was also lead, lead singer, lead guitarist of punk bands on and off around the same time. And what actually happened for me and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not bitter at all, but it's just kind of funny. I, I was coming up as kind of the white rapper from the Midwest at a time when there were really white rappers other than the Beastie Boys. And, and I was pretty good. And I started hearing about another guy that was a white rapper here in the Midwest. And he had a little, a little group called D12. And he started doing some solo stuff. And uh, he ended up having to change his name from M and M to M and M, but you know, mm -hmm. he was also doing the battle thing. He was also kind of the white and he, he was a few years older than me. He took it a little more seriously. And I was, I was still in college. I was still doing the punk thing too. You know, he was just full-time hip hop. And although I've, I, I've come to appreciate him more uh, a little bit as an adult, but I always thought he was a great lyricist, but I always thought he was a really crappy human being. I, I didn't like that. He was so seemingly disrespectful to, you know, his, his daughter's mother and to his own mother and, and to women in general. And I, I'm quite a feminist and always have been. And so I really, he just kind of rubbed me the wrong way, but I was told by some, some potential uh, record labels and things of that nature that they just didn't want to go in on a second white rapper from the Midwest at the same time. And, really? you know, his, his run went pretty well. And, uh, right. you know, I, I kind of, I would say there was probably a small point in time where I was more popular of a white rapper in, in Chicago land than Eminem was in the Midwest. And uh, if he'd come here, we probably would have battled and, and, and that could have changed the trajectory of my life. Right. Who knows? Um, but I'm really glad things did turn out the way that they did. Hmm. That, that's great. Yeah. So I was, um, I was kind of blown away a little bit or shocked a little bit when the second, my second guest in a row was, was into that. So no, I appreciate <laughs> that. And um, what the, so one thing that I think we share, one thing I kind of want to start to get into a little bit is, you know, I, you know, I, I cut the cord. I don't have cable anymore. Um, I just wasn't using it. The, the cost of unused channels and all that stuff just kind of wore me out. And I was trying to become more of a minimalist in certain things. So I kind of, I cut the cable. So I really, what I really only wanted was, two channels. I only need two channels. I need ESPN to follow all my sports and I need the food network because I'm fascinated by all those chefs and the food industry and cooking and all that sort of stuff. And that's really all I need. Um, but your background is in the food industry and is in, I don't know if it's necessarily in cooking or your background in cooking, but you spent 20, 25 years in the food industry and um, you know, as a waiter, I guess, right? Is that essentially what you did for 20, 25, 25 years? Well, yeah, 20, 20 years. And, and I'll go into that for a second. I, I wanted to say something because it's kind of funny. Um, I do, I've got cable and Netflix and Hulu and all those things, but the, the two channels that I never watch and have zero interest in are ESPN or the food <laughs> channel. I, 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 after 20 years working in restaurants, you never want to see right. another chef cooking anything again. It's like, I'll tell the waiter what I want and they can bring it out to me and I'll, I'll eat it. And that's the extent. Right. Um, you know, and so many, so many chefs really are jerks and it's not just a TV persona. They really are. So, you know, I've sometimes that. I've accidentally flipped through and seen the food network and it like gives you PST, you know, post-traumatic <laughs> stress. It's like, no, no, don't talk to people like that. That's not nice. Right. Um, 
but no, so I, I spent 20 years of my life in, in the restaurant and hospitality industry. And uh, it started when I was 17. I was actually a, a bartender at 17 at the Kellogg Business School at Northwestern at the Allen Center. Uh, the reason being students had paid uh, a lot of money to be there. And so they didn't have to pay for their drinks. And in mm-hmm. Chicago, at least at the time, if you weren't taking money for alcohol, you could serve alcohol as long as you were 16 and had a work permit. So uh, I was bartending at 17, one of the only people I know that bartended before I was 21. Uh, and then I did that for some time, got pretty good. I was also waiting tables there kind of, you know, for the lunches and dinners for the students. And um, it was a formative experience. And my, my mom worked in the building. And now years later, you know, they, they pay me to go speak at, at centers like that, you know, as an entrepreneur instead. And it's really kind of just a cool full circle. But I went crazy for a few years. Um, didn't have a job for a few years, didn't have a place to live for those few years, kind of, uh, you know, traveling the country and getting to know myself. And when I finally realized that being on the streets effectively wasn't a future that I wanted for myself, I literally got a job. This is just about 20 years ago, uh, you know, give or take a few months, probably got a job as a, as a dishwasher. And mm-hmm. I was the guy I, I, I understood the opportunity that I had. So I showed up to work early every single day. And, uh, you know, even after I was clocked out, if there were a couple of dishes, I'd go and I'd wash them better than anybody had ever washed a dish. And they really started liking me and my work ethic. And so the next season, they promoted me to a busboy. And I, I was a busboy, the same thing, showed up early every day, helped the waiters more than any busboy ever had, kind of, you know, I didn't realize, but I was really kind of figuring out how to be a waiter. And there was a regular there named Peter Yarrow, who happens to be Peter from Peter, Paul and Mary. And he took a, a big liking to me as, his, as a busboy, but he wanted me to be his waiter. And so he talked to the owner of the restaurant. Hmm. Incidentally, this restaurant just closed down uh, in Telluride, Colorado, but they were using my software until they closed down, which is kind of cool, full circle. Um, but so I, I was a busboy and Peter Yarrow wanted me to wait on him. And so they said, OK, Corey, you're, you're not a waiter, but you can wait on him when he comes in. And I did a really good job. And they noticed So the next season they promoted me to waiter and waited hmm. tables for him for a season. And then I. I kind of categorically started working down the street towards the nicer and nicer restaurants. And about a year, maybe a year and a half later, I was at the nicest, most expensive chop house in town. Uh, and and this in- is in Telluride, you're saying? Or is yeah, that yep, yep. Perfect. Yeah, let me, so, let me, yeah, let me, I, I don't want to cut your story off, but let me, let me ask you this. As you're kind of going through this as a 16, 17 year old serving drinks at Northwestern, and then you travel the road wherever you kind of go, but you end up in Telluride working as a dishwasher to a busboy to a waiter. What, what is, are you, what's your, I'm wondering about your mindset because you, you've knocked some things out and you're crushing things and you're 40 years old, but as a 20 year old, is your mindset, well, shit, this is my life and this is what I'm going to be doing and I'll just be great at it. Or are you kind of thinking about, you know, I'm, you know, I don't want to say bigger or better than any profession out there, but are you sitting around saying, Hey, great things are going to happen to me. Um, something bigger than this is going to happen. I'm better than washing dishes. Or are you reserved and resigned to the fact that, Hey, this is my life and we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, no, no big plans. No, no thinking I was anything. I mean, I, I was humble just to have an opportunity washing dishes. I was living in a garage with another guy and no plumbing at the time. So, you know, just even having somewhere to wash my hands and to get warm was great. And they'd feed us um, but I think I always just kind of went into it with a servant mentality and I didn't really expect anything uh, to, to happen. But I did such a good job waiting tables at the chop house. I was able to make a hundred grand that year. And this is in the town that shuts down twice a year. I was mm. able to start sending my mom money. And you know, she, she had known I was sleeping in parking garages and eating out of garbage cans not, not too far prior to that. So for her, it was amazing to know that I had a place to live. And at this point, I wasn't in the garage anymore. I had a nice place with a kegerator and a pool table and you know, the whole nine yards. But, but I did what, what, 
what I, what I was incredibly fortunate in is that I was living in a ski town and everyone else skied and snowboarded every day. And I didn't, I couldn't afford it. Didn't want the gear, didn't have insurance, didn't want to get hurt. Right. So I literally was working seven days a week at the restaurant. So it really helped me become their go-to guy, but it also helped me get really good. And I was winning all their wine sales contests just because I, you know, by sheer, by sheer uh, virtue of numbers, I was waiting on more tables. So I had higher wine sales. Mm. But because of that, I studied wine and I became certified as a sommelier. And so then I did the SOM thing and I worked my way up to restaurant management and I worked my way up to corporate management and I was an F&B director. I had a number of concepts underneath me and, you know, doing, doing everything from costing out the menus, selecting our wines by the glass program, things of that nature. Uh, ended up doing that with the melting pot for some time. I then realized that at the highest end, waiters were making more than I was. And so I, I went back into waiting tables because I knew I was good at it. Worked at some of the prime steakhouses in Chicago. I worked at one for about six years and I, I went, opened another one here. I worked there for about six years and we got bought by a self-made billionaire who had also started washing dishes in restaurants and worked his way up and uh, had, had, had amassed a $1 billion net worth uh, about two years prior. And then in a year, he doubled that to $2 billion and started buying up a lot of restaurants and we were one of them. So he bought the restaurant, 20 years in the industry, every day of my career was a problem with scheduling. You're always either overstaffed or understaffed and the on-call shifts literally were the biggest bane to your existence if you're in the hospitality industry. And so he came in, raised the prices, everything on the menu. You know, he kind of, mm. he, he was not there personally, but his, his messaging to us basically was very jocular. And he said, oh, you guys all just got to raise, you know, I raised the price of everything on the menu. Um, well, and, but the portion sizes got a little smaller and we saw kind of the writing on the walls. Next thing he did was start to cut more co costs and more corners, took away our scheduling solution, which it was good. It wasn't great, but we absolutely needed it. And so I looked around for an alternative that didn't cost as much or ideally cost nothing, couldn't find one. We offered to pay for it out of our pockets. Uh, we were shocked to find out how expensive it was, but, but no, no problem. We needed it. So we offered to pay. They said no. They didn't want it on the balance sheet. So I started trying to hack together some things because we, we absolutely needed some way to, to in, engage with our schedules online. It's too many moving parts, over 100 employees. I mean, it, it was just something that had become part of our day-to-day -day life. And then we were absolutely inundated with, with online scheduling. When I found that there wasn't anything available on the market, I decided that I had to come up with something. And mm. what, I did, what I did realize is that on an employee shift schedule, that was where the hiring manager knows when they need people or not. And if there's a somewhere like Chicago with a large workforce, we could get on-demand temporary shift workers uh, to fulfill those on a schedule. So if a restaurant worker needed a dishwasher on Friday night, publish that out to the network of people who work as a dishwasher off that night looking for work, and you could be fulfilled there. And so I realized that there was this massive opportunity, and people are now saying we're getting into kind of the Uber for work model. Right. Uh, we've got a we've got a powerful partner. Uh, they're part of American Family Insurance, and they do the actual shift fulfillment. So we'll be the marketplace there. They just announced that partnership uh, earlier this year, and so <laughs> it's really compelling. I, I and, and the first day I said, okay, all my competitors have really stale names, so I'm going to come up with a fun name. So I came up with the name Shedwell. It's playing the word and the spelling schedule. Uh, I came up with the the first logo, which I still love. It's our legacy logo. It wasn't quite as professional, so we had a new one kind of done to look like a calendar. Um, but, and, and I started on the wireframes and I, and I quite literally tried to learn how to start coding all within mm. the first 72 hours of having the idea. So the first wow. day I came up with the name, I came up with the wireframes, I came up with uh, a lot of the high level concepts. And then one of my favorite stories is how I, how I got my CTO. Mm. So 
Um, it was only about a week or two in, I put out this beautiful Craigslist ad because I knew nothing about tech or the web or anything. And all, all I knew about was prime beef and, and Bordeaux at the time. And so I put out this really well-written uh, Craigslist ad. And, and basically, you know, it was saying, here's, here's the thing, hospitality industry is underserved. There, there's no affordable scheduling software. Here's where we can take this thing. No one's doing this, that, and the third. I've got a couple large restaurant groups that would, that would absolutely come on board and, and pilot this thing if we can build it. Um, you know, we are a startup. I, I, I'm going to be going full time with this, but I don't have money to pay you. And so instead of that, I'm going to give you some equity and this is going to be amazing, right? Mm -hmm. Just much more articulate than that, much more robust than that. And, and then the title of it was something along the lines of, you know, start, startup looking for technical co-founder. Um, but somehow it almost implied that there was no pay. <laughs> and so, you know, 24 hours into it and I keep checking my inbox, I hadn't gotten a single response. So this is frustrating. This is Craigslist, right? In my mind at the time, like everybody's on Craigslist, right? Like why, why am I getting right. no hits? And so I was just kind of hopefully patient and I waited another few hours and, and, and I still had gotten nothing. And so I logged in from my other email account and I responded to the ad and mm -hmm. uh, went on Craigslist, went to the ad, responded to the ad. And uh, I wanted to see if there was maybe a glitch. Nope. I sure enough, I got that, that response <laughs> to my Craigslist Oh, there's one response and it's me. Okay, well, this isn't working. So I figured I would just wait a few more hours. And when no one, no one had got back in, I said, that there's got to be something wrong with the post. And, and so I just kind of, I read through it and I said, oh, this sounds great. I, I can't think of what I would change in the post. Uh, and then, then I looked at the title and I realized it just wasn't very compelling. So I changed the name of the listing to make a million dollars, join a startup. Mm. And within 10 minutes, I had probably 20 responses. Um, it's when, when I post on LinkedIn, I look to get at least one like per minute for the first hour. If, you know, if 55 minutes in, I don't have 55 likes. I know it's not going to do as well. Well, this, this was the equivalent of that on Craigslist. I was getting two likes per minute and you know, it was absolutely amazing. And all these CVs, you know, I, I worked at, you know, whatever, you know, software company for 10 years. This is my, this is the tech stack I code in. I'd love to come join you. You know, we can talk equity and everybody was so excited. And I, I got overwhelmed. I didn't know what I was looking at. I'm like, I don't know what these programming languages are. I don't, I don't know what those acronyms in your title mean, you know, all these things. And um, it just kept getting more and more and more. I probably had over 100 people respond. And, and I was kind of a solopreneur at the time. I, it, was, it was kind of, I was out over my skis. And one person and one person alone was smart enough to kind of go and see if we had a website. We did. We had this little landing page I had made. And I uh, saw my email at the bottom, which was not the Craigslist email. And so he emailed me to my actual email. And he basically said, listen, I'm a full stack developer. I've got a full-time job that I love. Uh, but <laughs> I, I am from Chicago. I absolutely love the idea. I can probably give you 35 hours a week. I can build everything, you know, for the web and the mobile. Um, and uh, if you want to bring me on board, let's do this. And uh, so we had a couple calls. I decided he was my guy. I brought him on board as my co-founder and co uh, technical co-founder and CTO. And um, it took, took him some time, but he built our entire foundation. He built the version one that we got on the market, got companies like BP and FedEx and uh, the Four Seasons using us uh, mm -hmm. just, just on his, his uh, you call it V1 alone. And now obviously we've got a, a whole dev team. So we've right. got a number of people uh, that are working on new features and functionalities and we'll have clock in clock out using geofence here in the next few weeks. And we're now live with Alexa integrations and Google home and Google calendar integrations. And wow. uh, we're kind of, kind of the first voice activated scheduling tech platform in the world. And um, 
it's been really exciting, but I would, you know, I, we wouldn't be on this call and, and no one would have ever heard my name if, uh, if it weren't for that Craigslist post. Well, uh, yeah. Make a million dollars, join a startup. Yeah, there's, there's, hey, there's so much to unpack there. And I, this is, you know, and I know you haven't listened to a lot of our podcasts and we've done, you know, 75 or so episodes. But one of the themes for us and with our podcast is, well, the title of the podcast is called Get you know, Out of Your Cube and the cube being out of your cubicle and taking risks and taking action and being motivated and setting goals and being engaged and collaborative and communicate with like all that sort of garbage, right? That, that I'm into and that our listeners are into. But you said something very subtly at the very beginning of that story and it just really grabbed me a little bit. Um, so if you go back to what you were saying about being in Telluride, Right. And I don't think things are coincidences. I think and what we've talked about in the past couple of weeks on the podcast is deserving the outcome of putting in and the grind and deserving it. Right. Of, um, you know, if you want to do something great in your life, whatever it is that you just can't wish it, that you got to take action, that you have to put in the time and, uh, and and work and whatever that looks like resources or time or computers or whatever it is. Right. Um, but you said something. Uh, that really grabbed me. You said that you weren't into skiing, you weren't into snowboarding, didn't have money for the equipment, you're living in a garage, whatever it is, and you didn't have health insurance and you didn't want to do anything risky to injure yourself. So because of that, you were able to work seven days a week. And what you subtly said was, I, just by being around, I was able to wait on more tables, right? So you just got more at-bats. Just by, and it may not have been surgical in your head that you were getting more at bats, but it's kind of that, you know, the, the Gladwell book of the 10,000 hours, right? Of this, of Bill Gates being up and in, in being raised around computers and just by default, he gets more at bats. And so when opportunity arises that you're, that you're prepared, you're able to walk through that door and you're able to crush it. But you just by being able to have more at bats. And being able to polish what a waiter's supposed to do and look like and talk like and how to customer service and knowing the product and the menu and the cooks and the businesses, then you leverage that eventually, many years down the road possibly, into working for one of the best steakhouses in the, in the Chicago area or if not the Midwest. Yeah. Just, be, just because of more at-bats, just because of a decision not to go snowboarding and to, to keep yourself occupied and busy. So then all of a sudden you're working for a billionaire who sells and now you have this great opportunity, right? All that just, see, I just think that stuff like that's fascinating because, you know, there's an episode of Colby Bryant where Colby Bryant says success is essentially math. It's just figuring out how to get more at bats, more time, more time in the gym, more time in the weight room, whatever it is. But you leverage that big time because, and I'm not suggesting you would not have been successful in other endeavors, but your your flagship business is this is the is this sure tool right and your your i'm sorry yeah your uh, sh, uh, sh, shed wool your shed wool app i'm sorry i get tongue tied with it that <laughs> is your kind of your flagship business correct is that kind of the first it's definitely your first home run i'm guessing is that fair it, it, it is i did a wine startup prior called the swirler i did a bunch of handmade hand-drawn uh, wine cartoons and i did about a thousand reviews of wine and we were just getting ready to monetize i had a small team we had over a thousand site visits a day so we we're doing really well but we weren't making money yet and we got hacked a couple times and I, I went in one day and the entire site was in wing ding font and um 
and it was very obvious that we'd been breached. And then, uh, then that happened again, and they actually extrapolated all of our data and left it as a blank site. Who knows what they did with the thousand mind reviews? But um, yeah, so we never made any money. We made right. a little splash, but uh, that was probably a year before starting Shedwell, and I think I learned a couple, a couple little lessons there. Hmm. So, but but so when you start, I mean. You having all these at bats and grinding it out and probably having the great mindset, great attitude, great work ethic and knowing something great's going to happen for you. And then you go back to Chicago, you work for a billionaire who then gets rid of something that you deem. And I think in other um, interviews that I've heard you talk about, you weren't the only one, like your entire team or the entire wait staff or the entire company are sitting back going, shit, we really need this software. It's going to kill us without it. Yeah. It, it, it just makes our life that much more difficult without it. And, and it got cut. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so there's one thing, listen, I, I coached in college basketball. We didn't talk about this offline and it's not that important, but I coached college basketball for a while and I saw a need in how recruiting was done. So we actually built some software and got it to market and did all this sort of stuff. Um, but what makes you, at, at whatever age you were at, see the need, much like I saw a need, you see a need and then sitting back saying, I can do that. Like I can, I can build it. I can find the people to help me build it. I can find the money needed to execute it. I can find the customers. I, you know, and I don't know what age you were at, but sitting around going, I can do that. And because you said in an earlier podcast and I wrote it down that everybody's got million dollar ideas every day, but not many people act on that. And my big phrase from my uh, early morning podcast listening was execution. Like you crushed it. You executed on an idea where most people don't. What, what did you have in you to say, I can do this? So I think just, just sheer tenacity. I quite literally have never once thought I can't do it. And, uh, I wasted a bunch of time trying to raise capital. I never did. I bootstrapped the company. We've literally hit every roadmap uh, milestone that I had projected without a capital raise. Uh, you know, and now we're making money. So people are trying to throw money at us. And I'm basically telling them what they can do with their money. And it's, it has nothing to do with me. It's somewhere they can stick it that it won't probably uh, generate a lot of interest. Um, I did bring on one, one value add investor, uh, an angel with a very small uh, investment very recently. Um, we're deploying that effectively for marketing, but he loves the idea. He's got domain expertise in an area that we're, that we're getting into. And uh, he, he legitimately just wanted this. And uh, so, but bootstrapping the company, I think was really, um, really powerful. And it really gave me the insight that you don't need money to start an idea. And that's kind of what we're doing with mentor you global. Uh, which is another one of my companies. I have a co-founder, co-CEO of that company named Caroline Fernandez, who's just absolutely amazing. And we've come up with this online three-tier business accelerator where anyone can take their idea from ideation all the way through to go to market and uh, re revenue positive. And we have that set up so they can do that without having to spend any money. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, we, eff we effectively roll up our sleeves. We have a number of consultants, coaches, and mentors uh, in every, every area uh, with domain expertise so we can help them with their website and make sure it's SEO enhanced and with the call to action we can help them with their financial modeling we can help them with uh, prototyping if they're the physical product or you know really anything and, and we introduce them to, to people that have either worked in the C-suite of competitors or potential partners and we've got a number of partnerships that we make introductions to as well um, and then I, I do I was inspired earlier by something that you said to, to, to share a story that I don't think I've ever 
it's not unique to me. It'll just be me recounting a story if you want me to. But mm -hmm. it's one. It's a story that had a lot of impact on me that I don't think I've ever shared uh, on social media or on a podcast before. So it could be kind of fun. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, so when I and my last my last uh, job here in Chicago, uh, my last as I say, the last table I waited I, at the Prime Steakhouse. I was I had regulars like Michael Jordan and Vince Vaughn and Steve Harvey and all these super cool people and. That, you know, Bill Clinton came in, I, I took care of him. And it was one of those things where, you know, you're waiting on these high profile people and it was great. But my first job uh, at a nice restaurant back in Telluride almost 20 years ago, my big superstar uh, that I'd wait on often was the owner of Sony. And his dad had started Sony and he just inherited the company. But he used to tell a story fairly often. And, and you know, being the fly on the wall, kind of standing behind him at his beck and call for his $2,000 Bordeaux, I'd hear this story and it really impact, impacted me. And effectively, his father, who had started Sony, very wealthy man, uh, they lived in, the, in the, the foothills of the mountains in Japan, and, uh, and he would have to walk to school every day. And so he would walk through the snow and the mud, and he would have to leave the house so early because it was over an hour walk for him to get to school. And about three quarters of the way to school every day, the school bus would pass him with all of his classmates on it. Hmm. And, uh, and, and he was really just it was demoralizing. It was, uh, it was embarrassing. Um, it, it was also just physically awful for him to have to walk like this at such a young age, carrying all of his books. So uh, he asked his father, he said, dad, I, I don't understand why, why are all of them on the bus and I'm not? Dad said, oh, because the bus, the bus costs money. He said, you have to pay to, to ride the bus. And, and this gentleman said, well, Dad, I, I don't understand. We're we're quite wealthy. You know, we, we've got plenty of money. Why don't you just pay them so that I can ride the bus? And his father looked at him. He said, "Son, I'm so sorry if I miscommunicated this to you in any way. I didn't realize that that you that you thought like this. Uh, I am a wealthy man. You are poor as dirt." <laughs> he said. He said, "You're not a wealthy man." He said, "If you've got money for the bus, go ahead and pay it. But if if not, he said, you're you're walking and you're." You're, you're going to be walking until you can afford that bus. And basically, I, I don't know if it was in this conversation, but effectively it came out. His father said, you know, I'm not doing anything for you financially until you make your own first million dollars. And once you do that, I'm going to make it worth your while. Mm -hmm. So flash forward, he walked to school every day for years and uh, was ridiculed by his classmates and, and upset with his father. Uh, well, he had kind of a, like an early college. I think they, they have a slightly different uh, education system there, but probably around college age, he was in an econ class and his professor gave him all a, a fake amount of money to start a company with. And they wanted to see what they'd spend the money on and how they'd make money with the company and things of that nature. You know, I think probably you and I have done some similar stuff in econ classes back in the day. And so he had this idea where the United States was starting to really get into Japanese food and, 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 uh, and sushi was the big one in the Japanese steakhouses. And uh, there was no sake here. There, there wasn't an importer. So his idea was buy a bunch of the sake in Japan at their local price and then import it to the States and have some contracts set up with some Japanese restaurants with some people that his family knew and uh, basically sell it to them kind of more of along the lines of what they were paying for other wine and kind of, you know, suggested as being something that paired very well with sushi and with, with Japanese cuisine. And so on paper, it looked like their very first shipment would make, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of tens of thousands of dollars profit. And his professor asked him to stay after class. And he, he said, uh, Pat, I, this actually looks like a really great business idea. I wasn't expecting this from you. Do you think it would actually work? And this guy, Mr. Morita, said, uh, well, you know, on paper, it absolutely would. I've done my research. No one's importing sake to the States. Uh, there is a need. 
Um, we do know some people that we could talk to. They, they, they are from Japan. They understand that, you know, that sake is the drink. And um, so, yeah, I think we could absolutely send it over. And, you know, you just basically uh, charge them quite a bit more because you're importing it. And you've got to keep it stable and all these things. So his, his professor decided to go in with a real investment. And the two of them started a sake import company to the States. So within their first few months, they made a million dollars. And so this guy made, made his million bucks, went back to his dad to make him proud. The dad, the dad handed him Sony. So, you know, at that mm -hmm. point, he then went from being a millionaire to a billionaire in the course of 24 hours. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it, but it, it just kind of goes to show you some people are so entitled. Some people don't want to put in the work. I think for me, I was really fortunate that I saw an opportunity and said, well, if I just work harder, I can make more money, <laughs> you know? Right. And, um, you know, I think it was kind of that mentality where nothing's handed to you. you you've got to work for it. Don't expect a handout. Don't expect anything from anybody. Just get out there and put in the work. Um, there was a time to prepare for my wedding not too many years ago that I was working almost full time as a waiter at a lunch spot because the prime steakhouse I was open, uh, was working was only open for dinner. So I was working four to six days a week at, at lunch at this little Italian restaurant. And then I'd go and I'd work my full time job as a waiter at the steakhouse at night. And uh, I did that so that I could pay for people to come to my wedding. It was a destination wedding in Mexico and an all-inclusive all resort. And people that we wanted to come weren't going to be able to afford it. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, working 80 hours a week to kind of make sure that, that, that we had that experience uh, sufficient to where my, my then fiance wanted it and, you know, was very important. But I think having that work ethic kind of continue right. over the years of, you know, early days in the restaurants through to my, my kind of last year or two in the restaurants and, so starting a company was pretty easy. I, I worked 100 hours a week for three years without a day off the schedule. And, um, you know, I think people often want to get results without putting in the work. I don't think that that's necessary. I, I understand that some people can't work 100, 100 hours a week without a day off for years. But um, my counter to that is if you can't do it, then maybe you can't, you know, get, get the levels of success that you might have wanted. Because I, I have found that, you know, there is a direct correlation to how much you try and what you put in and, and, and what you get out. Uh, I, I, there's you know, a few questions I have, and I I really like that Sony story. So I, I was writing that down. If you see me looking down, it's I'm, I take a lot of notes. Uh, um, let me ask you this: What? And I'm not to put you on the spot with like top threes and all this sort of stuff, but what would be a few things that you felt you learned? And I think you just gave us one that you learned through 20 or 25 years in the hospitality and uh, the steak business that you that prepped you for being a great CEO, a great founder, an innovator, an entrepreneur, like what, what prepped you uh, to, to knock it out with where you're at now? What'd you learn from that, from that, those industries? I think just how to treat people and how to be considerate. You know, I've taught etiquette classes before. I, I think that, you know, I was the type of waiter where if a, if a family brought their kid and the kid was really well behaved at the table, I'd, I'd take it upon myself to either, you know, make them a fun non-alcoholic martini or buy them dessert or something like that, just to really encourage good behavior and considerate behavior. And I think just learning how to talk to people and connect with them. Uh, but, but I'll give you the anti answer. Actually, um, waiting tables for so long actually made me a terrible salesperson. And there, well, this will come full circle. Um, there's a reason that I mentioned this, but I was wondering fairly recently why I suck so badly at sales. And I really do. I'm the worst. I, I tried to schedule initially was supposed to be completely free forever for everybody. And you know, people don't trust free and people don't like free when it's a business software. And so we ended up having to charge and uh, that was a learning lesson. But um, I'm an awful salesperson because for 20 years, my customer was hungry. They had chosen my establishment. They, they knew what kind of food was on the menu. They knew the price point. I didn't have to convince them they were hungry. I didn't have to convince them that they wanted 
you know, a filet over a ribeye. I can tell you that one's more tender, one's more flavorful. And you know, other than that, it's, there was no sale involved. My entire job was to, was to be friendly and, and to listen. And so, you know, now in, in the SaaS space and B2B, you have to convince people that they need what you're selling. And then you've got to convince them that you've got the best solution. And then you got to go in for the one-two punch and ask them for money. I, I've never been good at any of that. I never had to ask anybody for money. At the end of the meal, I just bring you your check because you know what you already ordered and you, there's no surprises there. You're going to see a sales tax and they're expected to leave you a 25% tip. And that's the end of the sales cycle. Um, so I didn't have to learn how to sell. I didn't need that psychology, but I do think that the real learning and to bring it full circle for you is once I started as a leader, identifying my weaknesses and my shortcomings. So wait, I'm not a great salesperson. That's why revenue is a little bit lower. So I brought on a guy who loves sales, lives in Breeze. He did seven years with LinkedIn selling sales navigator, had a multi-million dollar quota that he crushed every year, brought him on board, made him a director of sales. He put together a team and they're out crushing it. You know, it's, I think a lot of those things, um, I've, I've learned to wear a number of hats as a CEO, but, but I've also really learned that there's no reason to try, try to learn how to do something and hope you're decent at it when you can go out and find someone that loves it that's great at it and kind of give them a little incentivization or a little skin in the game and, uh, you know, let them go to town. So I think working in restaurants, maybe more than anything, has taught me how to speak to people and how to listen, uh, but also how to be a team player. I mean, if, if the bartender's not making your drinks and if the cook's not cooking your steak just right, then then you're the, you're the jerk, right? It's, it doesn't right. matter. You weren't the one that, that was back there broiling. And if they said mid-rare and it comes out, you know, pink, they're going to be pissed. Mm-hmm. And I, I think just having that communication and understanding that there are a number of moving parts and that there are expectations and that there are standards that have to be kind of adhered to, I think probably is, is, was my biggest takeaway. Yeah, so you're an inspiring guy. And listen, for those listening, um, how these podcasts kind of work. I don't, I don't know. I don't know many of our guests. We, I've had a few guests on that I know and that I see and I'll go have drinks with whatever it might be. Right. Um, I don't know Corey and, and Julian from last week. We don't know. We, we met today and, but I'm inspired by you because, you know, you took massive action when I would see these huge walls. Okay. I'm, I'm, essentially homeless, living in garages, waiting tables. I'm back in Chicago. It's probably expensive there. I'm not making a whole bunch of money. Um, you, although you did well at waiting tables, but you, but you even just said, like, I have no business background. I didn't get an MBA. I didn't even go to college. I went to college and I dropped out. And then I have no sales background. Like, I don't know how to sell anything. I know how to listen. And I know how to uh, figure out what people want. I know how to serve, um, but I don't know how to sell anything. So I don't have a business background. I don't know how to sell anything. I don't know about, you know, technology, you said. I, I have no idea about technology or, and I think you said offline, you could tell me what technical stack that it is built, that, uh, that it's built on, but you don't know the depths of it, right? So all these things that you can't do, right? But you had it, but, but you found a need and you found what you felt at least to you was a substantial need. Let me ask this. As I say that, how did you know that was a need for other people? That, that would be easy for you and your team at one steakhouse to say, this sucks and we need it. And now we don't have it. And we don't have enough money for all this other stuff to, 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 to come in and do it, but we could do this and we're going to build it. And then we're going to go sell it. But do other people have that, that? Did you did you just go research if there was a need outside of your own steakhouse that had a need for this? 
Oh yeah, I, I did a lot of competitive analysis and a lot of market research and a lot of kind of go-to-market strategy when we were in ideation. Uh, but the reality is I've probably worked at 30 restaurants in my life. Every single one of them had problems with scheduling. About half of them did have software solutions. About half of them didn't or were too early and, and the software solutions didn't exist back then. But so I knew how much a scheduling software could impact, you know, the life of the workers and the bottom line of the company. Mm-hmm. And for management, that really relates to, to, uh, to, to bonuses and, and the whole nine yards if you can optimize labor and hit, hit all your numbers. But so knowing that it was a problem in every restaurant and kind of having spent so much time um, both in management and on the service side, I knew it was a problem for managers as well as waiters. And having worked with so many people, I knew it was a problem, kind of uh, just a ubiquitous problem really is around scheduling. And what I didn't realize is how, how prevalent and rampant even the problem is outside of the, in, the industry. So um, once we started getting police and fire departments using us and hospitals using us, and once we started getting, um, you know, we've actually had, you, you were, a, you were a, a university sports coach. We've had some university sports teams mm-hmm. use the software to kind of help negotiate practices and then travel schedules and, and coordinate things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it turns out that scheduling is just a huge deal. No one's really... Uh, solve for it properly yet. You've got your legacy systems like Kronos that every single person complains about. Uh, and candidly, the, the system that we've been using, they, they're a $100 million company. Their, their founder and former CEO just left. And that now we're talking to him about potentially joining our board, which would be disruptive um, for our industry for sure. Um, but even that solution that we used for years, we always said it was good, but not great. We all knew what we wished it did that it didn't do. It, was, it kind of became you know, water cooler talk, like if, you know, I don't want to call them out by name, but this company that many people use, um, they didn't have it figured out. They built a decent solution and, and they made a lot of money with it. And so they never innovated. And you go on now and it feels like a 20 year old solution because it is. And, you know, you go on our solution and it feels like a brand new solution because it is. And it integrates with so many things and it does so many things that this other solution doesn't do. And it's just all the stuff that I and my contemporaries and wished that the kind of, you know, the, right. the, the market leaders had had and didn't. So I think it just really happened organically. Yeah. So I, I know the, I think I know the answer to this and it's probably not even really a question, <laughs> but I'm just really interested that the success of your companies, plural, um, most notably the uh, shed wool is really built around the fact that you knew what you didn't know. And I think you were humble enough, or it sounds as if you were humble enough to say, shit, I don't know. I don't know any of this MBA investing and capital raising and all this sort of stuff and how that landscape looks in Chicago or where those people are. I don't know how to sell. I don't know about technical stack, but at least you sat back and said, there's a need here. And we know there's a need and we know it's unique to uh, unique, not just to us. And there's a whole bunch I don't know. So I've got to figure this out fast or I need to find the people to help me figure it out fast where I think a lot of, and, and maybe you see and maybe you uh, can speak on this or have seen it that the, these great ideas that people have that can change their lives, uh, their communities, lives, their teams, lives, or companies lives. But, but, and I actually have written down at the top of my notes today. Um, somebody spoke early this morning that I was listening to that says, drop the ego, drop your ego where, you probably see in the circles you now run with where people don't drop their ego. And because of that, they're not as successful as they could be. Right. I mean, do you see that? Or has that been a good experience? Do you still run into scenarios where you step back and say, man, I don't know, but we've got to find somebody that does. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I post about that a lot on LinkedIn as well, specifically is, is dropping the ego. It's that important. 
there are people that are that are running hundred million billion dollar companies and leadership that have had talks with me that really want to have more of a relationship with me, want to go out to dinner with me. Um, I won't do it with, with some some of their egos. I'll literally literally tell them I can't stand their personality. You know, and it's not we're both alphas. I I don't need to be an alpha. I don't care. But I don't need someone that's going to treat me with any level of we're better than anyone else. You know, that that's just not in my ethos. It's not it's not one of my mission statements is to act superior to anyone on any level I, i'm all about empowering people and so there, there are people that have quite literally blown their opportunity to have a relationship with me because of their ego uh, and i think talking so much about that lately has been really empowering uh where do you that not to cut you off do you think that comes from the fact that you're sitting in telluride 25 years ago living in a shack and just trying to figure out where your next meal comes from that that mindset of like you know, now you get these big CEOs that are running these multi-billion dollar companies and they treat you a certain way. And you're just like, wait a minute, like you don't know where I came from. And you might, you might be the Sony guy, right. That had all these, and I'm not, and you're going to, you know, you know, I wonder where that comes from that, that. Oh, I can tell you, it comes more so than that. Even 20 years of waiting on the top senior executives behind closed doors when they didn't know I was listening to them and hearing how they talk about other people. Um, how disrespectful they are uh, to the average person, um, how truly, you know, I, I hate to sound cynical, but how evil a lot of them truly are. I mean, a lot of these people with net worths of a billion dollars have had to do it at the expense of a lot of people and by being really awful. And uh, so I knew that. And I, I know how they talk about people like me, the new kid on the block now. I know how they talk about the waiters. You know, I've got such good hearing that I could be across the room and I'll know what you're hearing. So I've really gotten into some of their heads and I've seen them kind of with their makeup off and I've, I've, I've gotten to know, you know, kind of the, the mindset behind a lot of these, you know, C-suites of, of the billion dollar companies and, um, you know, whether it's denying climate change now or whether it's, uh, you know, not paying their workers a fair wage or whatever it is, I just don't support any of it. Um, it's one of the reasons I've, I've had opportunities to take, to take venture capital for my companies. Um, I don't want to do that either. It's the same thing, you know, you're not going to get rich off of my hard work by sitting back and mitigating and, you know, waiting until it's been de-risked and all these things. It's, sure. you know, if, if you're going along with the ride, you know, if we're in this together, you know, and you, you want to write a check and you want me to give you a piece of paper, you know, we can go get that notarized 10 times still, you know, but, but it is, it's the ego. And, and I run the other way from ego. And I, one of my companies, TIR Global, we're, we're a global consulting company. We've worked with some really cool companies, but our entire message is, inclusion and diversity as a business strategy and uh, cult culture being uh, inclusive. How, how can we really get everyone engaged? And it, it's, you know, it's, it's knowing what the other person did on Saturday. It's, uh, it's knowing how someone feels, who their sports team is. It's, is it because you went to that school? Well, what did you study? So many people have degrees that are not anything to do with what they're doing professionally. There's a lot of insights there. Oh, you're an art history major. I like art. Let's talk. Right. And I think, there's so much disconnect from especially senior leadership with kind of their, their frontline people. And I think that that's a big problem. And I think that yeah. the ego is there. So, you know, I, I try to do one-on-one -on -one meetings with all of my staff every week and it get the, the, the team keeps growing. So it gets a little bit more difficult. Sure. I've got two, two of them a day and it's, you know, 15 minute calls. And one, one of my directors the other day said, Corey, I think, you know, a lot of people are joining the company just because they're drawn to you and your energy and what you're doing on LinkedIn and all these things. And he said, I think that they want more Corey time. And, and this is going to sound like a, like some someone with an ego as well. I, I just say it because it made me laugh. And so you know what, 
Corey's for closers. <laughs> you know, once tell him to start start bringing some more some more deal flow, and uh, you know, I'll go take them all out to dinner, and uh, you know, I'll go babysit their kids if they're out making us money. But uh, but so I think right now this fifteen minute uh, one on ones with them sure. is going to be really just a way to show them. I don't think I'm better than you by by any means. If anything, I think you're better than me because you're the one that's out there making me rich. You know. Um, what, but yeah, what, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I want to, I want to honor your time and I think we're right around 50, 55 minutes, but what were some, and again, not to pin you down on your top three or top five, but what were, as you started, as you started your company, uh, the, you know, and what would be like one, two, three main wins that you made decisions on? Like, Hey, that was a great decision. That was it. What were some immediate wins that you got because what I'm thinking is with your background and what you were doing and where you came from and this laundry list, not a laundry list, but a, a list that you put out of things you didn't know, um, you had to create momentum. You had to get this where every day you were like, man, I'm going to do it today. Like today, yesterday was great. Today's going to be better instead of, you know, losses, you know, but you had to win every day. So in order to get those wins and build momentum, what were like some three or four or, or one or two, whatever, really good decisions you made as a startup trying to get things going that you think put you where you're at today? So I'd, I'd say uh, probably the, the two, the two big picture best decisions were actually two terrible decisions. I, I went into a, an accelerator program that was four months. Um, I, I, I don't know if I'm legally supposed to say this, but uh, I, I won't use the name, but they were also in Telluride, Colorado, which is incidentally also where I met my wife 10 years ago. And we were just there a few weeks ago snowboarding. So Four, four times in my life I've been there. They've all been somewhat formative. But that four-month business accelerator was terrible. It held me back four months from progress. I didn't make a bit of uh, any of the connections or progress through that program that I'd wanted to. But although it kind of, you know, and there was no PR from that that I'd been expecting. But I learned a lot of what I would do differently with an accelerator. And now that I have a, my own accelerator that we're launching, um, that was really formative. And I think I might not have been ready for, for some of the next steps that I would have taken otherwise. So it might've just been a nice four months to go and really get to know myself as an entrepreneur. And then I also was accepted as one of only eight companies into the first ever post accelerator. And that was hosted in Las Vegas and it was a whole other ordeal. Again, I was let down on every level, but I learned a lot from both of those. Uh, but otherwise I'd say some of the big wins was first getting my CTO. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm nothing without him. Um, I'd say another big win for us was, uh, I got to mention a little write-up in Forbes um, pretty early on, I mean, a couple of years ago, probably just months after I'd started the company um, from a publicist I was working with. But I think you know, that was a back page story and it really is just good for SEO. But I think getting a mention there got me thinking about PR. And I think from there, I've been able to get you know into uh, entrepreneur and um, we're, we're looking at getting a, a feature in Inc. And um, you know, Made in Chicago did a feature on us. And uh, you know, a lot of these kind of cool publications and every time that we make some something you know newsworthy like that, I'd say it's a huge win. And I think that was all catalyzed by kind of my early initiatives to just get my name out there, let people know who we are, what we're doing. Um, and other than that, I'd say that the big win for me was very humbling because it took me a long time to finally listen to people that are smarter than myself. But the moment that we started charging for the product, and it was almost a year ago, but I... I was so reluctant and apprehensive to charge for this because we had other ways that we can monetize this. And I just wanted to get a million users on the platform, and you know, 2 million eyeballs. And that was kind of the goal. Um, but I think the moment that we started charging, people started taking this more seriously. Money started coming in the door. You know, my bank started saying we're bankable and all these things. And so um, I think that probably was the one most 
formative moment was when I finally was smart enough and humble enough to listen to people that have been telling me for years, like, Corey, this whole free thing is not going to work. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I literally started charging for the same thing that had been free. People started liking it more. People started using it more. And, uh, you know, we got some pretty good press from that. So um, yeah. hopefully, that, hopefully that answered your question. No, no, I think that's great. Um, because actually the software that I had built that I mentioned earlier, that was a, you know, the free model as well. And we went back and forth on that. And I think I was very reluctant, very much along the same lines you were about offering a free solution and getting eyeballs and getting users and things of that nature. Now, so um, la- kind of my, kind of the last question. What, what, um, you, you, so you, you started uh, a shed wool and, and that's rolling and maybe that's your primary focus, but you have spun up some other things. You have other businesses that you've spun up, other apps, other passions that you have. What, what are some of the other things that you've been able to do now that you've got the shed wool going so well? Yeah. So I'm actively trying to replace myself as CEO of shed wool. I, I love the company. I'll always stay on as executive chairman, but I think I, I was able to take it from zero to one and one to 10 pretty well. I'm looking for someone with the expertise that's, you know, raised tens of millions and, and, and led hundred million dollar companies. And so I'm talking to a few people that are showing some interest. And uh, um, the reason being, I'm so passionate about my new project, Mentor You Global. We are a completely pro bono consulting, coaching and mentoring platform. Uh, we're in open alpha. So we've got a landing page. Uh, we're working on an entire ecosystem, uh, which will have a social media component, the business accelerator component. but it's a great way just to kind of pay it forward, pay it back, and um, and to kind of capitalize on some of my wins and losses and my learning learning experiences and, and lessons uh, throughout the years, um, and kind of a way to, in my mind, help help make humanity in the world a little bit better place. Uh, TIR Global, I, I I love just because we're, we're taking a different approach to consulting. I'm also with a company called Packlock as their chief strategist, and Packlock is really cool. Uh, we make bags that. Um, you can't cut through them, you know, they're, they're indestructible effectively, but they've got GPS trackers and a remote opening mechanism. So you can have a phone or jewelry or tickets or anything delivered to your house. You see when it's there, you don't have to be home if anybody takes it. I mean, that's literally just like they stole your car, you, you can find them. Uh, but so with, with your phone or with an app, you can just open it and leave it for the, the same mail carrier to come pick up next time they're there. And we're getting some pretty cool uh, interest on that one as well. We've got our prototype done and it's phenomenal. We've uh, we've filed for our patents and it looks like they'll be granted. And um, so I'm really excited about that one right now. Uh, there are a number of other companies as well. I'm, I'm doing an emotional intelligence uh, app for kids and for their teachers and parents to better understand them called FamTime. That's phenomenal. And I, I'd encourage any anyone listening to this right now, if you're active on LinkedIn, depending on when you hear this episode, I'm sitting right around 29,000 first connections right now. So I've got room for a thousand more people before LinkedIn kind of puts the kibosh on uh, getting new, um, new first connections. And I've got my assistant going through and finding people that are a little bit more dormant on that list that we can get rid of. So I can always hopefully, you know, bring some more people on, but anyone that, that, uh, that wants to connect, I'm happy to connect. If, if, if you go there and I'm at 30,000 and I can't connect with you, just go ahead and follow me and my content. Com- commenting on my comments or commenting on my content is the best way to get on my radar and uh, kind of stay abreast of what I'm doing. But then I'd love to hear what everybody else is doing as well in ways that I can be helpful. You know, I'm, I'm probably on 15 advisory or board of directors right now. Uh, and I'm looking to double that. It's, you know, I, I used to think I was too busy, you know, for anything. I was too busy to go get coffees. I was too busy to get to know my connections. I was too busy to, you know, do demos of my product. And uh, it turns out, that was the dumbest way of thinking. And we, we all create our own realities, but we also all make time. And I've just learned to make time for everything. And so mm. I make time for anyone that I can, and especially things that I get excited about, 
one of the things that, that I see as potential disruptors, um, I'm always about it. So um, that's some of the things I'm up to. But if anyone wants to see even more, just uh, head over to Corey Warfield on LinkedIn. Easiest way to find anyone on LinkedIn is type their name and then their company name. So C-O-R-Y Warfield, type Shedwell after that, and I'll pop right up. Perfect. Um, yeah, with that, yeah, my last question was going to be, um, you know, how people can track you down. So if you also look in the show notes, I'll have um, information about um, Schedule. I'll have his LinkedIn information, if that's okay with you. I didn't ask you beforehand to put all your information there. And then the uh, mentor. And what, 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 what's the mentoring URL? So it's uh, mentor.global. Okay. Part, mentors.global backslash info.html. Okay. So we'll, we'll get that. That will be in the show notes as well. Last question for you, 40 years old. And this is a question I typically ask. Um, and since you, you are active on LinkedIn and all that, I haven't asked this question for a while, actually. I'm not sure why. What does your LinkedIn profile say when you're 45 and five years from now, what's your LinkedIn profile say? Um, it, it's probably going to move more towards the philanthropist, um, you know, angel investor, um, you know, at, I would anticipate that in five years from now, I, I won't actively be a CEO of any companies. Hopefully I'm just able to kind of help the CEOs of my companies and support them, you know, as they continue to grow them. But I'm really passionate about social issues. Uh, I'll be doing quite a bit in the Midwest. I'm absolutely loving Malala Yousaf and the Malala Foundation and what she's done for humanity. And I really just want to get more involved. I'll tell you, it's very strange, um, but I've got people even at the Pentagon that are wanting me to run for president. They're wanting me to run in two years. It's, it's not going to happen. Um, but there, there probably is a, a fair chance that, that, I'll, that I'll be a candidate. It, it, it's the, the, right, the right people are kind of making me an offer I can't refuse. And so um, in five years, there, there's a chance that my LinkedIn will say presidential candidate. Really? Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I, you know what? I, I hope to do this podcast for a long time. You might be the only one that will say that would be on your LinkedIn profile in five years. I'm not sure I'll have another one. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, that would, that would say that's going to be on their profile. You know, it's one of those things like Gary V. I meet these people or I listen to these people that have these big, huge goals. And the people that I follow and uh, that I'm engaged with, um, you sit there and say, yeah, he, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. And you know, whereas other, whereas sometimes I'll have these big goals and I think people, I think people look at me and laugh. Um, but you're what you come across as one of those people and like, yep, I can see that happening in, in the next, uh, you know, at 45 years old, 47 years old, that that's going to be, he'll be a presidential candidate. He'll be doing all this philanthropy work, social issues. So I love it. I love it. And, and, uh, listen, I know you're busy. Um, it, and obviously everything you're involved with, with all the companies and the boards and all the work that you do, um, making time for us and our little podcast here. Um, I really appreciate it. And we connected on LinkedIn and you responded to me on just a kind of a, a, a wide net that I threw out on just trying to connect with people. And, um, for you to do that really means a lot. Cause I know that you probably get pulled in many different directions. So again, I appreciate your time. Well, likewise, you know, people know about me because people like you put me on front street. So I absolutely appreciate you as well. And to anyone listening, I'll always do my best to make time for anybody and anything. And um, I was, I was a little overextended. So I hired an executive assistant. And now she's got me right back on track. You know, she can kind of, she can go through some of the stuff that might have slipped through my cracks and circle back and go, Corey, 
George went on his podcast, he didn't respond and I can say, well, will you tell him yes? And, you know, I think probably you worked, you worked with her, you got me on the calendar and, you know, taking that process out of it, freed me up to do another podcast and then, you know, doing that one freed me up to do this one. And so I think it's all about just optimizing processes. I think it's all about just kind of, like I said earlier, making time for things that are important. And right now for the world to know who I am and what I'm all about is very important to me. So I truly appreciate the opportunity as well. Yeah. Big time. Okay. With that, uh, if you want to reach out, go to the show notes. Um, I'll have all of Corey's information there so you can reach out to him and really, again, appreciate it, Corey and everybody listening. I hope that you got as much out of this as I did. And it's one of those episodes at least that I'm going to circle back through and make sure my notebooks open and that I take notes on. I think the big thing and my word of the year is action. And I think Corey lives that and embodies that and does it probably on a daily basis, but more so when he got his, when he got it going, right. When he had this, when he saw the need, you know, there's a, there's a phrase in coaching, you know, you know, see the need, fill the need, you know, and fulfill the need, all that. And he saw the need and he filled it. And I see a lot of needs every single day. And, uh, and I'm very reluctant on many occasions to not take action. And uh, that was a a big thing that I was going to do for 2019. So with that being said, Corey, thank you so much for your time. And everybody, appreciate you listening. Take care. Thanks again for having me.